I think we can all appreciate that a tank is a very close quarter space. And can you expect the three guys or four guys or gals in the tank to have that two meter separation? No, you don't. Things are a bit different for everyone these days, even for folks who drive around in tanks. I mean, uh, any armies in the world, we're part of the society. There are no armies in this world that are outside of the society. And obviously, sometimes things will take place, just like it happens in the society. That's Eric Laforet, a Canadian colonel stationed in the Baltics, those three little countries in the far northeast corner of Europe. You've got Estonia on top, then Latvia, then Lithuania. And they're wedged right between Europe and Russia. Anytime you ask your Canadians about what strikes them the most about the Baltics is the joint and the common love for hockey. But Colonel Laforet is not there for the hockey. So why is he there? Why is this hockey-loving Canadian colonel in the Baltics in the first place? Why is he spending his days thinking about the best way to socially distance in a tank? I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We're giving Malika a well-deserved break this week, and I'm jumping in with this corner of the world because I've been kind of obsessed with it lately. You see, if there ever were to be an armed conflict between NATO and Russia, this is where it would happen. And this summer, with rising tensions in Belarus just next door, this geopolitical tinderbox is heating up. NATO forces are approaching. We understood this last year when they announced drills. But coronavirus has slowed them down a bit. Trying to hold on to power after a highly disputed election and weeks of protests, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko made this threat, that NATO tanks were on the approach. Now the situation, from their perspective, has become unstable, and they have switched to active operations. They've deployed all their troops. We can see this. F-16s have been brought within 15 to 20 minutes flight time from here. So, I was obliged to give the order to put the army on high alert. For its part, NATO has rejected Lukashenko's statement. But at the same time, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, Belarus's opposition leader and many say the country's rightful leader, is hiding out in the Baltics, in Lithuania adding tension to a region that was already tense. And to find out how things got this way, how the Baltics became the front lines between NATO and Russia, we called up Valdis Rakutis, also in Lithuania. See, Valdis is a military historian, but there's some Baltic history he didn't have to study. He lived it back in the 70s and 80s when he was growing up. We have a lot of restrictions. You always, you have to think what you say Yes, you always have to play by rules. Lithuania wasn't independent when Valdis was young. We were part of Soviet Union, a Lithuanian semi-state. Before he was born, Lithuania had experienced a brief period of independence. But before that, Russia had controlled Lithuania for the bulk of the 19th century, too. My childhood was, uh, I even thought that maybe in Soviet Union I will live all my life. It was a hopeless feeling. There was this constant threat of being sent to a work camp in Siberia or one of the other outer enclaves of the Soviet Union. For example, the family of my father were taken to the Siberia, and uh, some people were taken to Siberia. Some of them were shot. Some people were shot. And every night, Valdis said he had this ritual that kept him going. He would lie in bed and turn on his radio and listen 
as BBC reporters told him in Russian what was happening far beyond the Iron Curtain. It was for me the most beautiful information. Because you feel that you're part of the world. We feel that very interesting feeling that somewhere outside, life is perfect. Not here, but somewhere. Yes, and you always feel that you will have to join them. Years would pass, and Valdis held this dream in his mind. The most important thing for us was independence of Lithuania. Then, beginning from 1985, we begin to feel that some changes will come. Mikhail Gorbachev, you remember him. He was the leader of the Soviet Union in the 80s. And he started to talk about openness and change. These varied undertakings by the world community bear the imprint thanks to Perestroika and the new thinking. Cracks started to appear in that Soviet foundation. And in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. Thousands of East Germans came across the border today, perhaps more than 100,000, so many that border police lost count. Every family feels that maybe freedom will come. It's a reason why so big amount of people support our independence movement. And in March of 1990, it happened. Lithuania declared its independence. Then... 1991, in January, uh, we were attacked by, by a Soviet army. It was like history was repeating itself. Once again, Moscow was taking Lithuania back. And we have no, no army this time. You see, Lithuania had been a Soviet puppet for so long, they had no military to defend themselves. All they had was the people. The people and the press watching to see what the Russian army would do as tanks rolled into Vilnius, the Lithuanian capital. You know, it's a, it's a special feeling. When you stay around our parliament and you feel that tanks are coming. A special feeling, but also kind of a scary feeling. Thirteen Lithuanian civilians were killed by Russian forces that day. But in the end, Valdis and his compatriots did what they came to do. After rolling into the Lithuanian capital, the tanks just left. Lithuania kept its hard-fought independence. I was this time 21, yes, and one old woman say, do you know what happened today? Today was a very important day. They'd won their independence, again. And this victory is the narrative that's taken up really the bulk of Valdis's life. But more recently, that old narrative is rising to the surface. The threat of Russia taking Lithuania back. Sometimes we have such conversations. Maybe in three days we'll be taken. Maybe two days. Maybe four days. And we should be clear. When Valdis is taken, he means the country of Lithuania being invaded and occupied by Russia. Again. Valdis lives in Kaunas. That's Lithuania's second largest city. And he says the fear there is visceral. From Konas, we are very close to the borders. The truth is, Lithuania is a pretty small country, so no matter where you are, you're pretty close to the border. We live uh, between Kaliningrad, which is part of Russian Federation, and Belorussia. And you can't blame him for being concerned. 
On one border is Belarus. It's been big news lately. A country at a crossroads. Calls for change growing. Elections, they say, were rigged. Leave, they tell their president. But Alexander Lukashenko says he's not going anywhere. So that's one side, Belarus, which is heavily influenced by Russia. And then on the other side of Lithuania is Kaliningrad, which is actually Russia. It's a Russian exclave, and I should add, it's considered the most heavily armed territory in all of Europe. So very bad, I will say, position. Yes, between two, two things. If you look at a map of Kaliningrad, it almost looks like a separate country with no label on it, sandwiched between Lithuania, Poland, and the Baltic Sea. It's not geographically connected to Russia at all. It's almost like it's an island of Russia in Europe, and Russia would very much like it to be connected. We'll get to that in just a minute. As a historian and a Lithuanian, Valda spends a lot of time thinking and talking about war. But what he really wants is peace. One time I was asked to make some lectures about peace. It was the first time in my life, and I began to think about peace. And found that it's very simple to make a war, but it's very hard <laughs> to create long-lasting peace. And I think the most important result we have from the NATO is long-lasting peace. So what does NATO have to do with it? How does all of this work? For that, I called up an expert on Russia and Batman. This shelf is my Russia stuff. The one uh, uh, over here to my left is all my Batman comics. Casey Michelle is a true Renaissance man. My academic and professional background is in the post-Soviet, post-communist space. And he once taught a college course on Batman. I thought maybe the Russia stuff might be a little bit more applicable than the Batman stuff, but I, I'm happy to switch it up if, if, uh, if we ever want to chat about that too. That's another episode, though. In fact, you may hear it later this week. Check back Friday. But today we want to focus on NATO and what it's doing in the Baltics. So I asked Casey to start with some basics. NATO, it stands for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's been in existence since the late 1940s. It was initially formed under the Truman administration. That's American President Harry Truman to enhance American security arrangements in Europe. This was in the very early days of the burgeoning Cold War between the Americans and the Soviets. Back then, NATO was made up of the United States, Canada, and Western Europe. The Soviets still controlled Eastern Europe. Remember, the Baltics had been fully part of the Soviet Union. Now, the Americans were initially hesitant about bringing what had been, again, nominally, uh, a part of the Soviet Union fully aboard into NATO. But as other countries in Central and Eastern Europe began joining, there was something of a logical or natural progression toward eventually welcoming the Baltic states into NATO themselves. And we saw that take place in 2004 when they formally joined NATO. And for Valdis, this was huge. We were independent states. We have a lot of enemies, but very few of friends or no friends at all. And we understand that such a situation is not good. Until NATO, Lithuania was vulnerable. The NATO treaty could finally protect them from this pattern of Russian invasion. It really was the ticket to peace. When you are a member of NATO, you are a stable country, you have some guarantees for the long time. Very specific guarantees. And maybe the most important is Article 5 of the NATO treaty. I asked Casey about it. 
Can you tell me what Article 5 is and why it's so important to NATO? Article 5 is really the linchpin of NATO, kind of the, the beating heart and soul. It effectively says that an attack against one is an attack against all. So if, for instance, Russia decides to invade a formal NATO member state, say Lithuania, they would effectively be invading all of the NATO member states. An attack against Lithuania or an attack against Latvia is effectively an attack against America or against Canada or against the UK or France. Or all of the above. It really is all for one and one for all. See, Russia wouldn't have any problem invading these smaller countries like Lithuania or Estonia. But there would be bigger problems, potentially existential problems, if Russia took on the United States. That is the, again, the real linchpin upon which NATO exists. Uh, and that is really the reason for its existence. For Lithuania and other Baltic nations, NATO is great. It provides the sense of security they've never had. For Russia, it's a problem. We have seen claims that Russia is trying to stop NATO expansion eastward. So maybe now you're starting to see how high the stakes are in the Baltics. In this centuries-long conflict, these three little countries are the borderlands between Russia and Europe. And we're just going to go back and do a little more geography for a minute. Remember Kaliningrad? The most heavily militarized, heavily armed stretch of anywhere in Europe. A lot of this revolves around Kaliningrad that little geographic anomaly about the size of Northern Ireland. Casey says there's a reason Russia has all that military force there. It views it as being effectively surrounded by what Russia continues to view as one of its greatest security threats. European countries like the Baltics that are part of NATO. So as a result of that, Kaliningrad is effectively an island of Russian military power projection in a sea of NATO. But Casey says there is one thing that would make Russia feel safer. Some kind of land corridor between what we have is now Belarus, which is also a very close security partner of Russia, and Kaliningrad. The good news for Russia, that land corridor does exist. The good news for NATO and the Baltics is it doesn't belong to Russia. There is a small stretch of land on the Polish-Lithuanian border that prevents Belarus and Russia from connecting via land to Kaliningrad. And that stretch of land, it's about 60 or 70 kilometers long. That is called the Sawalki Gap in this, or the Sawalki Corridor. Sawalki is the name of the town on the southern side of the border, the Polish side. So it belongs to NATO. And it's very important to NATO's defense. If Russia decided to push into the Baltics the Sawaki Gap tomorrow, all it would take would be for a very quick lightning strike incursion from Russian forces in Belarus into Kaliningrad to link up those two entities. So when Putin says he may send troops into Belarus to help Lukashenko, it makes people in the Baltics and NATO nervous. If Russia ever did want to invade, it wouldn't take much and it would leave the Baltics completely cut off from Europe. This choke point, if the Russians are able to hold it, tanks can't get past it, troop carriers can't get past it, cargo trucks can't get past it, that effectively eliminates the potential for a land-based response. It is a very difficult area to retake once it has actually been covered and effectively conquered by whoever gets there first, in this case, Russia. And that's where Kaliningrad's purpose as a fully militarized exclave comes into play. Its missile capability makes any air or sea response from NATO extremely difficult. So when Valdis and his fellow Lithuanians have these conversations... Maybe in three days will be taken. Uh, maybe two days. 
maybe four days. That's what he's talking about. And there's one other reason he's worried. Some of his good friends faced a Russian invasion not too long ago. We feel that Ukraine is our friends. They are friends and they have a lot of problems. There were protests against Ukraine's Russian-backed government in 2013. And then in 2014, the Russian military appeared. This cell phone footage apparently shows Russian military helicopters in Crimean airspace, which is Ukraine's strategic peninsula. Ukraine has ordered full military mobilization in response to Russian moves on the southern region of Crimea. Russia insists its troops will remain in Ukraine until, in their words, the political situation has been normalized. And the Russians are still there. They've annexed Ukraine's Crimean peninsula and fighting still continues in eastern Ukraine even though there's been a ceasefire. For Valdis, the situation isn't normal. Ukrainians were really attacked by Russians. So full support for Ukraine. They feel that if Ukraine was attacked, maybe we will be the second. Up until Russia invaded Ukraine, the Lithuanian military was a small voluntary force. Now there's a draft. And the Lithuanian military wasn't the only one to take notice. Remember Colonel Lafore, the Canadian colonel, the hockey fan with the tanks? Well, he's based in Latvia, but he's from Quebec. I asked him what NATO troops were doing in the Baltics. Why do these nations need to be protected? Why do you need troops stationed there? We can go back in time to 2014 and 2016. That's when Russia invaded Ukraine? Those crucial two years, NATO has decided through two uh, series of summit that there would be an enhanced forward presence in the eastern part of, of NATO. An enhanced forward presence means NATO troops on the ground. Not just from Canada, but from Germany, Poland, the United States. We are here to assure those allies that if need be, uh, NATO will be there uh, as it should to defend for any incursion that could take place. So basically, NATO sent these forces to the Baltics after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in case, as Valdis suggested, the Baltics were next. Sometimes you're going to have F-16 or F-18s, fast air jet coming on top of us, buzzing us making a lot of noise and dropping bombs 10 kilometers away from us so that after that we can go and do our exercises. These are training exercises, but they're also a demonstration of NATO's defensive capability. But the reality is, Russia's readily available forces in the region greatly outnumber NATO's. And we know from Ukraine, Russia is capable of invading another country. But invading the Baltics? Is that something they would really do? Casey says to better understand that, it's worth looking at what's going on inside Russia, too. See, this summer, Russia changed the constitution so Putin could stay in power until 2036. But coronavirus has taken a toll on his leadership. His poll numbers have dropped, and there's been ongoing protests. We have seen an increasing erosion of domestic support for the Putin regime itself, which is now 20 years in power. There are a number of questions about Russia's economic stagnation moving forward. One of the very few areas that he can look to to increase that nationalistic base of support, make sure that these protests don't get out of hand, is turning to military adventurism abroad. Now, we saw that take place in Georgia in 2008. We saw that take place in Ukraine in 2014. We've seen it in Syria. And there are concerns that the situation in the Baltics would increasingly look like a potential solution to a problem for the Putin regime that there aren't many other solutions for. And the big cherry on top of those opportunities is fracturing NATO. Wait a second. 
How do we go from invading a strip of land to fracturing NATO? Well, here's a hypothetical for you. What would have happened in 2014 if Ukraine was part of NATO? If Ukraine was part of NATO at the time, it would have triggered Article 5 and you would have had a very real, very hot war between Russia and NATO. And of course, the Baltics are part of NATO. So if Russia invades the Baltics like we're talking about here, Article 5 would have to be invoked. NATO would be mandated to come to the defense of the Baltics. But would they? Or more specifically, would the U.S.? Obviously, President Trump uh, has not been the most vocal fan of the NATO Security Alliance, especially as it pertains to the perceived lack of payment from certain NATO member states. And that's pretty important because America is the biggest funder of NATO and the strongest military power by far. So that and Trump's seemingly warm feelings towards Russia's president worries Valdis and his friends in Lithuania a lot. If uh, something happened good <laughs> between Trump and, and Putin, it will be very bad for us. And a lot of other people are worried too, including NATO. There is, under the current administration, far more questions about American membership in and commitment to NATO. In July, Trump announced a plan that would remove almost 12,000 U.S. troops from Germany. And then there's the global pandemic. And for Colonel Lafore, a lot of things he does every day while defending the Baltics have changed. There's a lot more cleaning happening. It was relatively easy for me to order that every two hours, 5% of the force will be dedicated to cleaning. They still do train in tanks. But then when they're done their training, then they'll start social distancing themselves so they're not becoming a vector to each other in case one of them got infected. And some things, some pretty important things, have been postponed. The United States has decided to alter uh, Defender 2020 for the reasons of the pandemic. Defender 2020 was a big deal. 20,000 American servicemen were meant to be part of a massive exercise, the first of its kind in a quarter century, to show how serious NATO was about responding to the threat from Russia. It did eventually happen, but it was dramatically reduced in size. But Casey says the threat that Defender 2020 was guarding against hasn't gone away. In fact, the pandemic may have made the situation even more precarious. So all of these ingredients, the Russian domestic situation, the American domestic situation, coronavirus writ large, and the actual security realities in the Baltics, in Kaliningrad, and in Northeastern Europe, all combine to point in one very concerning direction about what comes next for Russia's relationship with NATO and NATO's ability to respond. So this could be the chance to strike a stake in the heart of NATO. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. If Russia goes through with an invasion, a successful invasion of the Baltics, that is not to say that they will immediately begin assaulting or invading or attacking other NATO member states. All that the Putin regime would be aiming to do would be to illustrate that NATO is no more than a paper tiger and that Article 5 is effectively worthless. And Putin has completed his primary operation, which is to illustrate not only Russia's security power and military power, but the fact that he was the Russian leader to finally break the back of NATO. Meanwhile, Colonel Lafaray's Canadian forces are still in the Baltics doing their job. We are here to deter and defend. The presence is the uh, symbol of NATO's allies in the region. And for Valdis, he's still worried. 
history keeps repeating itself, and in some ways, he's right back where he started, wondering if Russia should invade in two days, or three days, or four days. Russia always hopes that they have to come back, to take us back. If they will be bigger, it will be better. For us, uh, I think that we more think about how to survive. It's not, not good and not good. Yes. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters with Alexandra Locke, Dina Kisba, Abigail Oni-Wohacha, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, and me, Kevin Hurton. Alex Roldan was the sound designer, and Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back, and Malika will be back soon, too.